Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And even so, even there is, even with the physical stuff, there's a kind of interpretation that is open to change. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, when you sit a long time, you can, because of the pain, that's one of the, Yes. Okay. Let's say, let's talk about selflessness. Let's talk, you want to keep going? All right. We, uh, so, you know, just to be clear, I am trying to present to you a fairly classical account that's coming out of the Buddhist philosophical tradition. And it's not always going to align what you've heard kind of in modern Buddhism. Right? So that's just a thing to keep in mind. And I'm not saying that, you know, the Dharma changes and it needs to change. So there are ways in which it's changing now in the United States. Uh, and but it's still in the process, right? So as we're so it's probably good for us to also keep track of what it was like before it came to the West, as it were. Okay, so we have these ways of understanding what kind of self is being negated. This is a kind of self that never existed and never could exist, right? That doesn't mean there isn't I, but there is a way of using the word I that is incorrect, or incorrect is not even the right word, it's just distorted, it's confused, where we have that sense of there being some kind of unchanging, absolute, and so on, that it refers to that. If I refers to all of this, you know, fizzing, interacting, causally interdependent organism doing its thing, mind-body system, that's not a problem, Okay? So, uh, so, which, by the way, when you, which is that idea of like, I don't deserve to be happy, like this mind-body, this buzz, buzz, you know, buzzing, fizzing mind-body system doesn't deserve to be happy. That sounds even more kind of strange, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like saying, the, you know, an amoeba doesn't deserve to be happy. Like, it wants pleasure, it doesn't want pain. I mean, what's wrong with that? So, um, uh, in the Abhidharma, they introduced this idea in the Sanskrit Abhidharma. I want to clarify that we're talking again about that Sanskrit Abhidharma. I'll talk about the text in a minute. It's going to be different. All of the traditions, the so-called 18 schools, had slightly different and sometimes very different versions of the Abhidharma. So the Pali Abhidhamma is not the same as what we're talking about here. It's very important to know that. And there's certain features of the kind of Abhidharma we're talking about here that make it really ripe for a certain kind of refutation coming from Madhyamaka. It makes it a good target. Now, that target may be appropriate for all forms of Abhidharma in some ways, but uh, maybe not in other ways. And how much of this, you know, the, the, it's... We can certainly find precedents of uh, Nagarjuna's style of insight, the philosopher who starts the Majamaka school that we'll talk about. We can find those in early Buddhism. Uh, 
So this is not, it's really important for us not to think that this is like going, looking at early Buddhism and all forms of schools and saying, you guys are all wrong. That is not the point here. This is going to be, I'll show you, I'll show you more later. It's the Sanskrit Abhidharma. So this idea of the two truths is introduced in the Sanskrit Abhidharma and it becomes very, and in other Abhidhammas as well, and it becomes very critical for the way in which this style of philosophy proceeds. So at the first level, the basic distinction between the two truths is whether something withstands analysis. If you engage in its... Uh, Vichara utsaha. So if you engage in vichara, which means analysis, also vibhajya is another term for this, if you engage in that, and the thing that you're analyzing, the object you're analyzing, is still there after you've done the analysis, then that object has withstood analysis. And that means it's, ulti- it's ultimately real. Right? But if it is uh, not there after you do the analysis, in a sense it disappears or it falls apart, then it's conventionally real. And the kind of analysis at this level, at the Abhidharma level, is again a reductive analysis. Can you break it apart? Right? In other words, can, if it's a thing that has parts, can it exist? Can a thing that has parts, that has constituent elements, truly exist? And the answer for this style of philosophy is no. Okay? We're gonna, we talked about that yesterday, but we'll talk a little more. So what's the conventionally real? It's basically, that's these are for the Abhidharmikas. Remember, that's the first two schools that we're talking about, of the four schools. Anything made of dharmas is considered conventionally real, right? We can use linguistic conventions to talk about them. The table, the leg, right? A leg is also conventionally real because it's made out of what? Irreducible elements, irreducible dharmas. But in the physical, basically the, the physical account here in the Abid, this style of Abhidharma is that the physical world consists of uh, uh, irreducibly small, partless particles. Okay? Uh, these are, uh, uh, anu is what there is, one term for them. They're irreducibly small, partless particles. And they constitute uh, things that have size. Right? They conglomerate and interact in such a way that they constitute things that have size. But the things that have size aren't truly real. Uh, however, things that have size, this is important, have, can, like a table, an individual particles cannot hold up the water bottle on the table. But when they interact in a particular causal way, they can do that. Right? So the, the, part of the use of the word table as a convention is talking about the particles in certain kinds of interactions. Right? It's not just a heap of particles. It's, a, it's particles that are in a certain kinds of causal interactions. And that's why the word, word table is very useful. It's much easier to say, hey, did you put the bottle on the table instead of saying... Did you put the bottle on several billion uh, infinitesimally small particles, particles that are interacting in such a way that they can hold up the bottle? It's like, you know, imagine how long it would take to say things. So it's convenient, and it's marking particles not just as particles, but as particles in particular kinds of causal configurations. Okay? But it's, what the important thing is, is that the configuration as a single thing doesn't exist. 
you know, the shape as a single thing doesn't exist. The table as a single thing doesn't exist. Anything that's made out of them doesn't ultimately exist. But it is a, it is a convenient way of talking about what does exist, which is these particles interacting in particular ways. Okay? Then there are, is that clear? What do you mean by irreducible? You can't break it down. You can't break it into bits. You can't analytically, conceptually break it into anything smaller. So it is, you, uh, uh, and this is actually quite, uh, in you know, scientific context, this type of reductionism is also very common. It's like you have some complex phenomenon, you break it down to its primitive elements. And the idea here is you keep going down, down, down until you can't get to anything more primitive. Oh, these also, we haven't gotten there yet. So being partless to being irreducible does not mean that it lasts for more than a second. More than an instant, not a second. So the final account of this Arbidhamma account is that there, the material stuff of the world, we're, we're going to get there, but basically is, consists of irreducibly small partless particles that, last, that are instantaneous. They're kshanika. They only last for an instant. Okay, so the model here is a model of what's called distributed entities and undistributed entities. So a distributed entity is a thing that exists over or through uh, other things. So a table is distributed over its parts, right, as an example. And the basic idea here is that a distributed entity, because it exists through these things, we're going to say these are irreducible. They have size, so obviously you could reduce them. But we're going to pretend these are irreducible things. These are undistributed. So this exists only conventionally, whereas these exist ultimately. All right? That's the basic kind of pattern. And again, that's like the inverse of the sort of typical Western philosophical attitude or even cultural attitude, you might say, where it's the one that really exists and the many is somehow dependent on the one. Right, the the early Buddhist, and this is very typical of early Buddhism as well. Uh, the early Buddhist perspective, and certainly the Abhidharma perspective, is no, actually, the one doesn't exist. That's just a fabrication of our conceptualizations, our vikalpa. What exists are the actual individual things that you can touch, taste, etc. Okay. Okay, so we're going to go through that now. So, whoops, I don't know why I have that again. There we go. Okay, so there are, there are basically three forms of distribution. I'm going to run through this fairly quickly. Uh, this is a Western philosophical term, myriological. It's just a term that's been developed to talk about part-whole ontology. How do parts and wholes relate to each other? What's real, right? The metaphysics of parts and wholes. Then there's temporal distribution, a, distri a temporally distributed entity is something that exists over time. We're going to go through it. Uh, something that's undistributed only exists for a moment. And then there's conceptual distribution, which is going to be very important. We'll, come, we'll talk about it. We're going to talk about all three of them. Okay. So this we've been doing. This is pretty easy, right? So this is myriological distribution, part-whole distribution. The chair or the table exists through the parts. And when you do the analysis... The analysis of what's called a, the a one, neither one nor many analysis is the generic name for this style of analysis. You come to the conclusion that the whole can't exist. Now, 
we've gone through this a little bit. Let me let's take the, a table for example. Like the, if we say the table is the same as the parts, let's say the table is different from the parts. What happens? Take the parts away. We should still have a table. Doesn't work. We say the table is the same as the parts. Then the top is the same as the leg, as the left leg, and the top is the same as the right leg. Therefore, the left leg is the same as the right leg, and the table only needs one leg. Doesn't work, right? So it can't be this simple, right? It can't be this. You'd be surprised how how strong this argument works actually in Western philosophy and how crazy it drives some Western philosophers. Some of them are like, yeah, sure, no holes, I'm fine. But a lot of them are not like that. And then there's the idea, so it can't be the same, can't be different. What if it's the same, what if it's different but related? And then that just leads us to that special case of the relation, which a relation is actually just a a two-part distributed entity. It's a single thing, a relation, distributed over two things that are in relation. So it's susceptible to exactly the same argument. If the relation is the same as this one, then it's two things. And we, it's not tied to this, because this is different than this. If the relation is the same as this, then how are we connected here? If the relation is uh, uh, different from this one, now we have a relation, then we have like a gap, and we have this, because they're two different things. So now we need a new relation to tie the relation to this. We need a second order relation. And now we need another. And then we say, well, is this the same or different? If it's the same, it doesn't work. If it's different, now we need another one and another one. So that's the infinite regress we talked about yesterday. In Western philosophy, this was called the Bradley problem, if you're interested. Uh, uh, I think it's Herbert Bradley in the 19th, early 20th century. And his solution was just to say, uh, that, well, relations exist in a different way than, and uh, relations and holes exist in a different way than parts and things that are in relation, which is exactly the response given by the Nyaya school in, in India. So a key aspect of this move is actually Occam's razor, which is you cannot just make up metaphysical entities because you're unhappy with the conclusion of your analysis. Right? Like, oh, it's got to exist, so it must exist in a different way. Nope. Like, oh, if the, if the self can't be, if there can't be a self that's constituted as a whole of these parts. So one option here, it's pretty easy to say, well, the self can't be any one of these different constituents. It can't be my sensation. It can't be consciousness, because consciousness has to change. Remember, the certain kind of self we're talking about. It can't be my fingernail. Right? That's not the self. So, well, maybe it's all of it together. And that's why we get this part-whole analysis, which is famously in the Melinda Panha, right? The, the questions of King Melinda, a very well-known Pali text, with the chariot. You know? Nagasena is having a dialogue with, the, with King Melinda, the Bactrian Greek king, and they, he uses the chariot as an example. Like, well, you know, the, is there a single entity that's the chariot there? not the wheel, it's not the axle, and so on and so forth. Right? Is there a single thing that is the self here that's made out of these parts? We go through this kind of analysis and nope, doesn't work. Okay? So we could spend the rest of the time doing part-whole analysis. It is really interesting as a meditation practice to really step by step 
go through and, and take any entity, not yourself at first, like take a table or a pen or whatever, and really go through, and, and, and because most of us resist this, like, of course there are the tables, there's one thing there, there's a table. And you go through, and it's step by step, step by step, step by step. And if you don't cheat, which means cheating in this context means either you invent metaphysical entities because you're not happy with the conclusion, or you stop being rational. So that's a key part of this, that you have to commit to being rational, which means specifically that you have to commit to not endorsing contradictions. Oh, the self both is and is not the same as the aggregates. Nope. Did you say again that we're the concept of emergent? So an emergent entity either is the same or different than its components. Yeah, so if we say that traffic is a real thing, then, or actually a tornado is a, is a good example of an emergent entity. It's unstable, but it's an emergent entity. So if the tornado is a real thing, then it exists separate from the air molecules. So even if we say it's emergent, we have to have a metaphysics of its emergence. We have to commit to either saying the emergent system exists separately or not. So there are different versions of how to talk about that. There's things like supervenience. It supervenes. But in the end, they're all basically just ways of trying to, what's called worm wriggling in the Brahmajala Sutta. It's like you're going to wriggle and try to avoid the conclusion that if you're going to respect contradiction, you're going to avoid contradictions, and you're going to avoid something called the excluded middle, which means... If, something, if two things are either the same or different, you can't say it's neither. Like all things in the universe, everything that we could talk about either exists or doesn't exist. We can't say neither. Right? So that's two forms, two key laws that have to respect it in order for one to engage in, in what's called non-deviant reasoning. So this is key in Buddhist philosophy. Right? If you don't do that, then you can believe whatever you want. Like, fine, go right ahead. You, know, believe. you can make up all kinds of things, and you, know, you can have, believe in all kinds of contradictory things and, and, and excluded middles. So, you know, there is, I don't know, the, the, the spaghetti monster both is and is not made out of spaghetti or neither made out of spaghetti or not spaghetti. Oh, you got the spaghetti monster? Really? <laughs> cool. There he is. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> so, you know, like you can believe anything you want because it makes you comfortable or, you know, whatever. But the, this thing, this is the like tough part of Buddhist philosophy, which is what the whole Buddhist tradition is built on. It is that the because it's not just about observation. The very key thing is, even though a lot of what Buddhist philosophy is saying is you need to carefully observe. For example, we're going to say, okay, what do I actually see here? I see the table and so on. I can still then say, well, tables must exist as single things. I observe a thing that I can interpret as a single thing. So there are tables. Real absolute tables. So just observation in itself doesn't prevent me from inventing things. It also doesn't prevent me from endorsing contradictions and excluded middles.
So you have to use reason. And this is the key. It's like, if you don't want to do that, then, you know, that's fine. But then you can't do Buddhist philosophy. Yeah. Uh, that's a complicated question that I've been involved with lately, talking to certain quantum physicists. Yeah, I mean, the theory, because physicists, they look at theory. So, yeah. Like, sure it's like, it's, uh, no. So, so, very short version of it is, a theory is a model. Models are useful, uh, but they may impute entities that don't exist. So then they're not useful. But the main thing to remember is no model is reality. A map is not the territory. So for some physicists, that's a very challenging thing because they think that mathematics is like real entities in the, in the universe. But not all physicists are like that. No, some quantum physicists are not like that, like Chris Fuchs and Cubism. Okay. It is, but it, it's it's implicit there, but it's not quite going all the way into... Then it's not asking really... It's sort of t- suggesting, right, there isn't a single thing here, but it's not directly going through the argument, like the Melinda Panha does, kind of, go through an argument, right? And then you have other texts that really go through systematically the argument. Yes? Yes, you could do that, but they don't, you could do that. And that's going to be more like the Nagarjuna-style relational argument. So that'll go, here they're really kind of focused on going on reduction. But you're talking something that sounds more like relational. Now, here's the thing I want to point out. If we use this argument, we come to a contradiction, right? If the table is the same, it doesn't work. If it's different, it doesn't, same as the parts, doesn't make sense. We run into a contradiction. If it's different than the parts, we run into a contradiction. If it's different than the parts but related to them, we run into a contradiction. So the, what that means, that what that contradiction is telling us is there can't be both a real table and real parts. So it's possible that neither exists. So why do we say that the parts exist and the table doesn't? Because the Buddha said so. Yes, they're not reducible, but how do we know they're there? How do we even know they're there? We're perceiving it. Yeah. Maybe it is the matrix, but that'll come later. <laughs> Where we're perceiving it. We see, what do we see? We have sensory input. And that's the baseline for reality here at this level of Abhidharma. Like, you, can you touch it? Can you? Now we're moving from things. To the only thing we have is the perception. Exactly. We, have, we actually have to say that something is there is that we have a perception of it, or we have an inference that is of its effects. 
of an effect that we can perceive. Can't see the fire over there, but I can see the smoke. I can't see the individual particles, but I can see the effects when they come together. We're going to come to color later. So in this account, they would say there are color atoms, and those color atoms group together. When they're big enough, you can see them. So you can't see them directly, but you can see their effects. So what you, basically, you can say, I see a color patch, so something's out there. Something's causing the color patch. Some physical thing, because they well, it maintain that there's matter. Some material thing is causing it. Is that color patch... You know, is this color patch right here, is it a single thing or is it many smaller things? You can't, all you know is there's got to be something. And then you use reason to analyze, could it, does it have, could it be one thing or does it have to be many things? And then the, the, the final part of it is it's got to be many things because of the rational analysis. Yes? I just want to say I'm, I'm going to Oh, Okay. Okay, that's I understand. That's fine. Take care. Just need a little break. It's fine. Yeah, no worries. We'll see you at lunch. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, no. Don't worry. It's fine. Have a good. Have, we'll see you at lunch. Uh, so then, there's temporal distribution. So you've got moments in time, discrete moments in time, and a thing that's distributed over time is temporally distributed. That doesn't exist ultimately. So the table is also temporally distributed. It doesn't ultimately exist. But the individual instances, which are actually a bunch of atoms, right, they exist. So that means that the only thing that ultimately exists also has to just exist for an instant. Okay, then there's also conceptual distribution. These are called gata in Sanskrit. Uh, it's a word for a kind of special kind of water pot. And then gata tua would mean potness. So when we say, oh, that's a pot, that's a pot, that's a pot, they're all different, right? Just like every one of these tables is a little different. They all have like different marks on them or whatever. And that, you know, that's, that's a table and that's a table. Right, but they're quite different. So what's this? Even though they're totally different, made out of different substances, different, they look different, different sizes, just like these. What's what's the same about them? Oh, they all have tableness. It's essentialism. Yes, it's Platonic essentialism. They all have potness. So this this is one of the more radical aspects of the, of this uh, theory, right? This is really more Sautrantika, so called. The universal potness doesn't exist. Only the individuals exist. So what that means is all acts of categorization are on the side of the human mind. The category of the color red does not exist in the world. The category of atom does not exist in the world. The category of person does not exist in the world. Yeah, it's all language. That's right. All language, all concepts. Now, concepts can still be useful. So the concept table is useful, even though there is nothing that's the same about all tables. 
we can construct that concept, our system constructs that concept based upon the causal capacities of these things. And even though this is very different from that, it's not like, you know, this. So this doesn't perform the functions that we associate with the concept table. But this thing can and that thing can. So we exclude this. And even those, these are not, there's nothing about these that are the same. We create a, we create a class of this sameness, the tableness, by excluding it from the things that don't do what we want. Okay? So that's called the exclusion theory. That's how, so, so you know, there are no, our, all of our categories, all of our words, words don't refer to, actu- to actual categories in the world. Okay? I know that's a lot to deal with all at once. Any questions? Perceptions exist, but you don't see categories. We're going to come back to this when we talk more about cognition, but basically the first moment of perception is non-conceptual on this model. And then you categorize that sensory data, but you, sensory data is, not categor, is pre-categorical. It's not categorized. It's not conceptualized. Not exactly. There are, it depends. Uh, so if you are, if you're a strong version of what's called predictive, predictive coding, then the, what we have actually direct access to has already been categorized. Uh, but that's a very strong version of that, and so it kind of depends. But what you can say is that our ordinary key thing, and we're going to be talking more about this model later, because this is going to be key. This particular thing about how perception works is going to be extremely important for non-dual stuff. And what you can say is that our ordinary experience is at the conceptual level. Like, we don't even notice the non-conceptual stuff. Except when we do, like, solids, even like vipassana, we can start to drop below the conceptualizations and notice before the conceptualization. This is a really important distinction that you just made because the first moment of perception is experiential. The second is cognitive. So, so yeah. experience exists. For now. Yeah. At, until their brain syncs up, they don't categorize. It just looks like that's correct. Chaos. Actually, the, you can, if you want to read about that, it's called the uh, Prakash Project, I think. That actually happens. That they thought those people would never be able to see. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the. Is a scientist at MIT, was Indian who started this project in India, and uh, they people can see, but they go through a very interesting process of learning how to categorize visually. Because yeah, in animal models, the animals remain blind after the after vision is restored, they appear to remain blind, but people don't. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about a cognitive model. We're not going to go through all of it because we don't probably really need to, but I thought you might want to know a few things. So the sources we've been talking about are two Sanskrit sources, the Abhidharma Kosha by Vasubandhu, that's a picture of Vasubandhu, and the Abhidharma Samuchya by Asanga. They're sometimes called the lower and higher Abhidharma by the Tibetans because this one is technically 
not at the, uh, not at the level of Abhidharma philosophy. It's at a higher level of philosophy, at Yogacara. But basically, there's a lot of overlap. There's also a lot of overlap with other Abhidhammas like the Theravada Abhidhamma. But especially the kind of version that's in the Abhidharma Kosha is going to be susceptible to, is going to kind of overdo things in certain ways. And that's going to be a really good target for Mahayana philosophy, for Mahayana critiques. Uh, they do have a model, though, that everyone continues to use after them. So they use the model, by, and they avoid the exaggerations and the problems in it, but then they do continue to use the model. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that model. And that model then also, a second aspect of that model, the first aspect is about consciousness and mental facets, and the second is about basically cognition, meaning perception, inference, language. And that's coming from a style of philosophy called pramana, which means the way of knowing. And it's not just Buddhist, it's non-Buddhist, but the, the most important Buddhist pramana philosophers are Dignaga and Dharmakirti. Uh, so some of this is in that article I sent you. I know it's a lot of information, but you don't really need to... I'll give you the slides. These details, for some of you, may be interesting. But the basics of the model, I think... I'm just going to skip this part. The basics of the model... You want to know about method? Okay. Okay. So, basically... Uh, you can think of these models as developed through phenomenological examination, and that seems certainly to be the case. Like, people just sat there and, and observed their experience. Uh, so, you know, you have someone who's not just an ordinary observer. So already, we're not, it's not really like you just ask ordinary people what's going on, and then you take that report. Because when you do that, we already know from psychology, you get a lot of confused stuff. People are pretty bad, generally, at reporting on their own experience. But when you train people to observe carefully, then you can, they can give you reliable first-person reports. And we also know that from working with uh, long-term meditators in, you know, in recent scientific work. And it's empirical in that, and this is a really key aspect of Buddhist philosophy that we've already touched on, the evidence of the senses, the evidence of perception, is the baseline. So if I want to say that there are spaghetti monsters, I have to have evidence that I can perceive directly, that I can then, using causal inferences, like there's, you know, there's, there must be fuel over there, because I can see smoke, which means that there's fire, which means that there has to be fuel. Right? Like a sequence of, that's a sequence of inferences. I, if I can't do that with the spaghetti monster, then there's no spaghetti monster. Doesn't matter if I want to believe in it or whatever. That's not, I can't, I can't prove it. I could create a kind of entity that is completely insulated from any causal interaction with my, with my world. I could say, well, there is a spaghetti monster who never interacts causally with this world and that never, uh, and that is completely imperceptible to any form of human knowledge acquisition. And then what you can say is, well, for our purposes, it doesn't exist. We can't disprove it, but we also can't prove it. Paranoia. Okay. It, it, it couldn't make sense of it, but it feels like it's not really happening. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can. Then I would. I could prove like, oh, you have certain. I can prove that you have mental events. Like I could say someone is convinced. You mean like in this paranoid state? Then I could possibly infer from your behavior that you have a belief in your mind. So that exists. The belief exists, but the entity that the belief refers to doesn't exist. You get it? So kind of like QAnon, right? So I can. Th- yeah. Okay. Uh, debates, but here's a very important thing. It's important not to just take, not to just take the, um, uh, how to put it, those texts themselves as telling us, as just purely phenomenal observation and empirical reasoning. Because they also need to be systematically internally coherent and they have to respond to other debates from other schools right especially these texts because they're written in sanskrit other texts written in pali how many people other than buddhists were reading them we don't really know texts written in sanskrit lots of people were reading them and they were critiquing them so the texts are also the product of trying to making them internally consistent and protecting them from critique. So some things texts say are not necessarily going to be just the result of observation and empirical reasoning. You understand that? Which means that it's sometimes hard to know. It also means that the text can start to overstate things, which is precisely perhaps what happens with the Abhidharma. Yes, exactly. So you can say a very good... Ex- yeah, this is great. Like people, and I've seen this very much on the ground, and of course Thomas Kuhn talks about this in his History of Scientific Revolutions. You know, basically scientists are trying to do this, like they're not doing phenomenological observation, but they're doing careful observations, and they're then using empirical reasoning to arrive at certain things. But they're also like, they've got, they've got a rival, yeah, they're trying to get grants... You know, they're doing peer review, like they got to get through peer review. And so like, hmm. Yeah, what is the motivation? Exactly. Yeah. So and this motivation, it might be nice to think that all Buddhist philosophers were motivated purely by selfless, uh, you know, like compassion and this and the, the need to know the nature of reality to liberate beings. Wouldn't but nice? but wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Yes, right. Not, I don't, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Basubandhu was said to be a very advanced, at least an Arya, um, meaning he'd reached, reached the path of seeing. But, uh, you know, he, there were other commentators, and who knows who wrote it down, and anyway. Some so, yeah, some of them just needed to eat, exactly. So, we can talk about every mental event includes both the sheer apprehension of an object, what's called a main consciousness or vidnana, jnana or vidnana, and it also includes other features called mental facets, chitasika. Okay, and consciousness therefore includes what we can call phenomenality, a kind of feeling to it, and also in, uh, cognitive content, a knowingness. So there's both a kind of aspect of a, of a sense of 
being conscious, a feeling of being conscious, and then also a knowingness, like I'm knowing something. Okay? Yeah, it may be not kinesthetic. I mean, that's a very good question, which we will explore later. Like, what does it mean to feel conscious? And how do you know you're conscious? As opposed to knowing that you are uh, defining as cognitive. Yeah, correct. Yes. So there's a feelingness, there's a phenomenality to it, a sense of being conscious, and then a sense of, like, information. Like, you know something. Something that is actionable. Something you can do something with, right? So that's... And what that means is that this, you know, this model is assuming subject-object intentionality. Intentionality is a technical philosophical term in the West. It just means that structure, subject-object. The structure that we talked to before, remember? Yep. So it assumes that. All moments of consciousness are dualistic on this model. Okay? Now, are you talking about consciousness as one of the five aggregates? Yes. That's what this is. Yep. It's also that, vijnana. Okay, some mental facets have to do with the cognitive features of an event. Others are more affective about the feeling, how it feels. And both types contribute to all events. Right? So you can't have a moment of consciousness that doesn't have affect. You can't have like a purely cognitive moment of consciousness that doesn't have affect. What's the minimal, what's, one, what's a great example of something in Buddhist theory that I'm sure all of you know, or many of you at least know, that's an affective feature of every moment of consciousness? Exactly. Yeah. Feeling tone. Vedana, that's right. Every moment, so, so you, you can't get away from that. Okay. And very importantly, this model assumes that cognition is about action in the world, which is actually great from a contemporary cognitive scientific standpoint because it makes it very easy to kind of have dialogues with cognitive scientists on this model. Right? Like there's, you're not knowing things as a passive receptor. The, 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 the organism, the sentient being, is not knowing things just like passively the organism is knowing things because it wants the good stuff and it wants to avoid the bad stuff. It wants to get the good stuff and it wants to avoid the bad stuff. So the system is kind of built up around that and the model is also built up around that. Okay? In other words, this is what we're working with as ordinary beings. Like what? Can I have a cognition? Like, for example, you're saying that everything, every cognition has Vedana. Yes, right? correct. So therefore, that Vedana means that every cognition has to be it affected me in some way and I want to do something about it. Or yes, okay. to some extent. Does, well, you know, it depends on how intense, how strong. But, you know, Vedana is key for action in the world, for a model of action in the world. Why? Why would it be? Yeah, we want sukha and we don't want dukkha, which are the two forms of Vedana. Sukha and dukkha. Pleasure and pain. Right? So I want those two things, and that my cognitive system, and especially if you don't think about a human, you think about a simpler organism, a simpler sentient being, it's like, good stuff, 
Bad stuff. Good stuff. Bad stuff. How do I know good? How do I know bad? Previous experience, because I'm those are conceptualizations. How do I get those conceptualizations? Previous experience. I'm creating categories through previous experience, and the previous experience had a, a sukha vedana, a good sensation, pleasant sensation, or a painful sensation. So I associate the sensation with that kind of thing. This one, you know, re- triggers that previous memory, and so I categorize them together, and that's good because it made the last time I saw something like that, it gave me pleasure. So let's go get it. Yeah, so that so in that case, that is also really important because if an organism was constantly running after, if every single sensation, every single cognition was either pleasurable or painful, every single consciousness, moment of consciousness, then the organism would never rest. And that would not be good. It would just run out of fuel. I don't know. That's that's a, that's a, I I have heard. I can't remember this because it's a long time ago. But I have heard that there are models that say actually there's no neutral. There's only there isn't actually a neutral one. But maybe and that it seems to imply there's a threshold. But we don't. Uh, consciousness and feeling tone definitely all arise. Yeah, primary like, but, but and then we have a moment of perception even prior to categorization. That's going to have a feeling tone, and that's going to arise with consciousness. Every moment of consciousness has a feeling tone. Conceptual consciousness also has feeling tone. Right. So. Uh, Stephen Porter, uh huh. Okay. So remember this, consciousness flowing through time, each moment causally produces the next. Let's take one moment. Okay, one moment of consciousness. And on this model, there are going to be five, remember this is the Sanskrit Abhidharma, there are going to be five Savadraga, uh, um, uh, yeah, omnipresent mental functions. This is technically from the later Sanskrit Abhidharma, the Abhidharma Samuchya, but it's the model that Tibetans use the most, and it's kind of useful. So we're going to separate these five from another five that you'll see in a second. What I, the, the contact, feeling tone, discrimination, it's a hard t- word to translate. It basically means object selection. It does not mean categorization. It means object selection. You're picking the object out. Intention, which is chetana, Right? Karma and volition and, and attention. Right? So that intention, as I understand the model, is the product of previous, like, you're not just idly doing nothing if you're conscious. Something is kind of motivating the system, even if it's rest. So. This, these arise, these all come together. Yes. Sanya. This is sanya. Uh, discrimination is sanya. And you mean like nama rupa? I think that's correct. I don't remember. 
frankly. I think actually it is often, it might be glossed that way. We can look it up, or we can ask, just ask Bhante and Alio, he'll know. It is so. This this would, would could be a moment of perception when we use the word perception to mean pre-categorical perception. So yes, definitely. So that's why discrimination doesn't isn't conceptual. It's just it's just about picking out the object. It's not about categorizing the object. If it occurs with a conceptual cognition, then it would be conceptual. Because this also these are five occur with every kind of moment of consciousness, both non-conceptual and conceptual. Attention is manisikara, and it's basically what's keeping the mind at that moment on that object. Okay? Or it's, I shouldn't say keeping, it's directing the mind in that moment toward that object. So very key mental function. Okay? Now, these terms... Some of these terms are going to be used in more general ways, not technical ways. So it's very important to know that the technical usage of these terms, you know, the original Sanskrit terms, and the more general usage of the Sanskrit terms are not always necessarily going to overlap. They should overlap at least a little, but sometimes they're quite distinct. So that's going to be important, especially when we look at these next five. These can occur in some, some conscious states. This is, a, this is a very useful distinction. It's actually not in the Abhidharma Kosha. It's only in the Abhidharma Samuchya. You don't, you don't find this kind of distinction in many other Abhidharma systems, like Abhidhamma systems. But what's useful about this is it tells you that you can have five that are always happening, but then under certain circumstances, there's another five that may be happening. There's some question about how many of them would happen the circumstances is basically reportable cognition. You can say something. You can report. That's, a, you know, that's an apple. Right? So categorization seems to be assumed in this. Or at least the capacity to categorize. The kind of cognition is available for categorization, at least. Right? And some of this is not that clear, to be frank, in the Abhidharma. So what are these other five? They are... Interest, orientation, retention, which is, the, which is a translation of mindfulness when it's used as this technical term. So yesterday I was talking about mindfulness as a technical term. That's the term. Smriti, or sati in Pali, but this is smriti because it's Sanskrit. Concentration and discernment. All right? So I'm going to... Uh, I think I'll skip, this is about Ned Block and two kinds of consciousness. I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip contact. These are all from the Abhidharma Samucha, actually. I don't think we need to. So here's, you know, Sanya, one of the five primary ones, what we were just talking about. This is the, this is the uh, translation from the Abhidharma Samucha. So... This is, this definition here posits a convention for the object of seeing, makes it, is when it's conceptual. That's categorizing. That's categorizing. Applying a label. Yeah, applying a label, yeah. But the nimitta, the grasping of the nimitta is not applying a label. So the nimitta grahana is object selection. So nimitta here doesn't actually mean label in this case. It really means referent. 
So pravrti nimitta is like the referent of the of a, of the use of a word. You can also say it's the it's it's the re, it's also a word for reason or cause. So it is a way of it's a term that's kind of a confusing term because it has that range, but here nimitta really means the the uh, the referent that could later be conceptual could later be the referent of a conceptualization. But you're just picking out the referent; you're not conceptualizing it. Isn't this then the two part? Isn't it synonymous with perception? Then it's got the two parts. Uh, uh, well, no. It's just that I, in one case it's going to be in a con- non-conceptual cognition, in the other case it's in a conceptual cognition. You get it. So, in other words, there's two versions of it. Yeah, there's there. It can occur different two different ways. Okay, we talked about intention before, right? Right, and then uh, attention. So, one of the oh, I think I did I oh yeah. Let me and let's just skip forward. Chanda is actually super important for practice purposes. Right, so this is so that first kind of those. If you're in a state of consciousness that only has the first five, in a way, you're not conscious. You're like kind of, you know, just vaguely aware. You're not. You can't say what you're seeing or knowing or whatever. Yeah, it's like the pixels. Yeah, you're not like you haven't picked anything out. You haven't really you, you've picked some stuff out, but you you're not really able to do anything with it, right? The, your cognitive system has done this, but you haven't conceptualized it in a way that makes it possible to act on it. Okay, so interest is important because this is what's driving the conceptualizations. Like, what do I? Why am I even trying to categorize this object? What do I care about? Because attention, so the first level of attention is very minimal, right? It's this second level where attention is operating at this second, second level is really like, I want to get that thing. We're still being motivated at the first level by getting and avoiding, but at this second level, we're like engaging, Right? And why do we engage with something? Because we care about it. So this, so in practice, this is why motivation and intention, really chanda, is so important in practice. And why we do that at the beginning of practice sessions is like, what, why are you doing this? Because it sets up the right kind of mental context. Even when you're going to, even when you're going to let go of everything, it's very important to set up that mental context. So this is an aspect of attention, right? Building on the previous one, uh, this is, uh, so here's mindfulness, right? We talked about that yesterday. It just means, so very important to see, like this, so first we had manasikara. If we just talk about attention for a second here. So first we had this kind of attention, one of the five. Verse 5. It's just kind of, so something's picked out the object, that's sanjna, and then the mind is like hold, held on the object. So they're occurring together. So one aspect of the mind is picking it out, the other aspect is like holding it, holding it in mind. They're occurring together, right? Very minimal form of attention. Then you have, right, this kind of intention. It is not just holding it, 
in a, in a minimal way, it's actually holding it within a state of categorization. It's like, this is that thing. Right? So that's more like, phenomenally, like really noticing. Oh, there's, you know, a bottle. There is so-and-so. That sense of that kind of attention. And when you do that, this is quite sophisticated model of attention that's really in many ways more sophisticated than at least some of the uh, uh, scientific models. And then, so it's like, uh, so something picks it, so you've got this picking out of the object, holding on the mind, like, uh, and then, oh, right, now you've got adding moksha, and I'm not going to look at anything else, meaning I don't have attention capture. So what? So those are all separate functions, right? There's picking out, there's holding on, there's oh, and then there's not looking away. So what's the not looking away? Smriti, mindfulness. That's all mindfulness is technically. Okay, so that's very important to know. It's not about does. So that's why you can talk about mindfulness non-dually. Because what it means is you're not captured. And you can be in a non-dual state and not captured, as opposed to a dualistic state focused on an object and not captured. You can be focused on something and not captured, or you can be not focused on something and not captured. Right? Okay. And so I just, you know, this is basically the intensity of it, and this is... uh, Basically, the capacity for the mind to not only categorize, but categorize in a kind of finely grained way. Can you say what you call those two lists? They're the object. Deter- they're called uh, the uh, the um, omnipresent mental functions uh-huh. and the object determining mental functions. Yeah, it seems like the first list is like you do in your research and you decide maybe you want to buy a car or a house, and then the second list is like you really tune into the one you want. Yeah, it's more like the first one is, you know, let's say you're looking for a water bottle and, you know, you just go, like, you look around the room and you go, uh, oh. So the first one is, like, the moment where you just kind of catch it and then the second is where that's the water bottle. It's a little bit like that, perhaps. I don't think we need to talk about this. I do some emotions research, but maybe we don't need to talk about this. Basically... The emotions thing, uh, emotions is not a category in the Abhidharma, in case you didn't know that. They don't need that category. There's interesting reasons why, but I'm not going to get into it, so let's just... So, now we're... Hooray! I find that so interesting. <laughs> that there are no emotions, yes. So I, I recommend the book, uh, How Emotions Are Made, by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a, yeah, who is a friend and colleague, and I kind of helped her with some of that stuff. And uh, she's great, and I think that I very much endorse that book. Lisa Barrett. Lisa Feldman Barrett, How Emotions Are Made. The Abhidharma looks like a basic emotions theory, and it really, this, and, and, until you add the sort of complexity of, con- of concept formation, so there's a version of Abhidharma that exists, or this model that exists where categories really are real things in the world. Okay, so if we go back here. Yeah, I'm going to stop.
we're going to go over in 15 minutes here, but I'll just thank you for telling me. I just really wanted to finish the Abhidharma. Get rid of the Abhidharma. Uh, so, where to go? Yes, it is. It's uh, afflicted. It's a, a klesha is something that causes pain. It may not be painful in the moment, but it causes dukkha later. It causes you're suffering. Yeah. So uh, this, these guys are active after this. These guys are really the most responsible for questioning the idea of real categories in the world. Uh, this is complicated because the verses of this text assume that the real, there are real categories in the world, but portions of the commentary, also written by Vasubandhu, critique that idea. Because the verses are written as Vaibhashika and portions of the commentary are written as Sautrantika. And that the Sautrantika are the ones who really call into question the idea that there are real categories in the world, and then Dharmakirti really picks that up and clarifies it. So the basic point here is that you know emotions look like, excuse me, this, these categories of different kinds of mental facets look like basic emotion theory in the sense that it sounds like in the Abhidharma, especially the especially this text, the verses of this text, they're saying those are real categories in the world. And that's true for, that, for the Vaibhashika. But pretty soon, uh, that's called into question, which means that when you're observing mental facets, like attention and so on, it's not like every moment of attention is identical at all. It's more like, just like, the tables can be organized into a category because of their causal functionality, but there's nothing that's exactly the same about the two tables. There's nothing about exactly the same about two instances of mindfulness. They're actually discrete mental events. Every, they're all completely, all things are actually completely unique, but you can conceptualize them into categories based on their causal capacities. And this is important for uh, the Lisa's work because this is the theory of what's called constructed emotion, which is saying there are not basic emotions. Emotions are the result of a categorization process. So you're never actually angry. You can be in a state that can be categorized as anger based upon its uh, causal functions, but it's not intrinsically in itself anger. Yes. Right. There's a famous case of what's called hangry. Yeah. There was a study done, I think, uh, in, yeah. in Israel with judges, and they started. Yes. They looked at the, you know the kinds of judgments they were meeting out in the morning, and everything was fine, you know, not so harsh. Then they got close to lunch, yeah. and they got worse and worse and worse. Then they had lunch, and then uh, you know the judgments were better again, and then at the end of the day it was worse. And uh, you know they and 
And, uh, you know, they totally denied, like, no, I, what are you saying? But, you know, they interpreted their physiological state as being irritated at the subject, at the person being sentenced, rather than, like, I just need to eat. And she says in her book that she thought she was falling in love with somebody. Yes, with the flu. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> it's a great story that she tells. Yeah, it's a good book. It's very, I agree with large portions. Not, not, I have some issues, but it's a really, it's a very strong presentation of that particular approach. Okay, we're over time. Let's uh, gather in 15 minutes, which is 25 after, and we do at least a little practice over at the Dharma Hall. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.